The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Unseen and Chapman pod on The Athletic. Uh, along with David, we're joined by The Athletic's Adam Crafton and our Manchester United writer, Laurie Whitwell. Coming up, we'll look at how United are working behind the scenes to avoid a summer transfer saga in their pursuit of a striker. Uh, Laurie will also share some of the details from his very, very good piece on Jose Mourinho's time at Old Trafford, including how he fell out in public with Paul Pogba. We'll also uh, look at his position at Tottenham. We'll also continue our look at how the England squad is shaping up ahead of Euro 2020. Could Jude Bellingham force his way not only into Gareth Southgate's squad, but into the starting 11? Uh, right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. So that's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll get the great analysis, the in-depth features from the very best football writers around, and ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman and uh, take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Let's start with Manchester United then and their win at Tottenham, uh, which keeps them in a strong position uh, to finish second. They're still favourites as well to win the Europa League ahead of their quarterfinal second leg this week. Let's start with uh, a story from your column, David, a joint story with, with Laurie actually on how United behind the scenes are looking to avoid a Jaden Sancho style saga. Although I could put a couple of other players in their style saga uh, in any possible pursuit of Erling Haaland. The modern day Man United love a saga, Mark, don't they? And I'm going to throw this around to Laurie because he led on this story um, very impressively. But it's clear that Manchester United do not want to be dragged through a summer like they were in 2020. The Sancho situation was frankly ridiculous. It was from the very beginning of the window, perhaps even just before it, right through until the very end where we were still hearing noises that they may be trying to pull something off if the price is right. Well, with Haaland, there doesn't seem to be that appetite. You know, we've talked already how difficult it's going to be for any club to get him this summer because of the transfer fee and the salary, which Laurie can go on to explain more about. Also, there's a release clause in his contract of 75 million euros at Dortmund in the summer of 2022. And they've indicated sort of intimated that uh, he won't be leaving this summer. And I don't think Manchester United are up for getting into a scrap for him. We don't think Manchester City are either, and the finances will be an issue there too. So it's almost coming down to a point of what's going to happen with Haaland this summer. And we did talk on the podcast last week when you were away that there's a very good chance that he does end up staying. And <laughs> I think that will be a bit of an anti-climax for all of us. But yeah, from Manchester United's point of view, <laughs> this is all well and good saying now, let's see if the proof is in the pudding, but they appear to have their intentions in the right place. And since this story has gone out in the column, the reaction from Man United fans is actually, for once, pretty positive. Yeah, I think so. Hopefully it shows uh, a lesson learned because as you know, you and I both knew throughout the whole of last summer, Jaden Sancho was the, the guy that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer certainly wanted as his number one. United were trying to make that work, but I think really, you know, from an early stage knew that actually the money, you know, was, was going to be too much. Dortmund's demands were going to be too high and that they should really have cut the cord quickly, realised that, and then 
done something else. Edinson Cavani came in on transfer deadline day. Had he come in a couple of months previously to that, you know, a month even, he could have hit the ground running, whereas actually he missed, you know, pretty much the first few weeks of the season. And we saw against Tottenham to the effect that he can have uh, on a football match. Um, so yeah, looking ahead to Erling Haaland, again, Solskjaer, this is a guy that clearly is very much in the manager's thoughts. It's, it's his choice, you know, not, not only that, but also, you know, the scouting reports and, you know, we can see it doesn't take a genius to work out that Erling Haaland might score some goals in the Premier League. But um, I think United are cautious about getting dragged into another situation, another circus, particularly with Mino Raiola and Alfinger Haaland going to Barcelona, going to Real Madrid very publicly, making it clear that this is going to be some kind of auction they want to engineer. And I think within those conversations that have been had, it's been very obvious that the wage demands from Erling Haaland's um, camp will be high and will basically mean that players that have been established at these clubs, you know, particularly Manchester United, would be surpassed instantly by the demands that Erling Haaland wants. So you look at David De Gea on £375,000 a week, I think minimum really, um, and at a stroke Erling Haaland would be in that bracket, perhaps even surpassing that You know, in terms of what the demands are. Um, listen, he's a 20-year-old striker that is only going to get better. You, you can argue that actually he would be worth that because he is of a level that you could bank on for a number of years but there's obviously a a dynamic there where clubs have to weigh up do we really want to give somebody who's fresh into the squad who is only 20 this kind of money when you compare it to other players in squads obviously we've you know touched on David De Gea there Kevin De Bruyne signed a new contract to Manchester City um, last week so he you know I think we're talking those kinds of region then you 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 flip back to Paul Pogba you know he's on sort of 280 290,000 pounds a week Anthony Marshall, 240, Marcus Rashford, I believe, 200,000 pounds a week. So at a stroke, Erling Haaland would surpass those kind of figures. And for clubs, they've got to Anthony, work out. Whether... Oh, sorry, sorry. Anthony Marshall's <laughs> yeah. on 240 grand a week. Signed his new contract, a favourite of Joel Glazer. There's reasons for that being the situation. That, that's what I've been told he's on. So <laughs> I've never been oh. swayed from that. Is that surprising that's to you, not- Matt? Yeah, I'd started the day quite happy and, and with very little cynicism, and now and now a lot has come flooding in. It's terrific. Tri- well, this me. this is the cynicism section, so I'm, I'm surprised it's taking you this long. Really, you kept very quiet whilst me and David are speaking. Mark's just annoyed that Martial surpasses his own income. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Laurie makes a really good point about the salary. We talked a while ago on here about Kylian Mbappe not being in the thoughts of uh, Manchester City, and the reason I explained was that they were acutely aware of his uh, potential wage demands which are being circulated around the market as being around 30 million euros net and that would shatter Manchester City's existing wage structure they would have concerns about what that would do for the chemistry in the dressing room at that point I didn't think that would be such an issue for Haaland but in recent days it's become pretty clear that his uh, wage demands would be sort of off the stratosphere too so it is a real issue I just wanted to throw it over to Adam because I think the most interesting line potentially from Laurie's info in in the column is that the Man United executives want to make a quick decision on this. We're either doing it or we're moving on. And that's something we've not seen with them in the past. I sort of commend their view of, you know, let's get this done quickly if we're going to do it. I just don't think it's going to be up to them. You know, unless Mina Raiola and Borussia Dortmund and Erling Haaland have very clear demands and Manchester United pay those, Okay, so you can say, we are going to give you everything that you want. Fine, okay, do that. But if Manchester United think that's too much and are minded to negotiate, this is not going to be a quick 
this is not going to be a quick deal because they're doing a tour of Europe. Um, they've been to Barcelona. They'll probably talk to Real Madrid. I'm sure they'll speak to Manchester City and Chelsea. So really the power, if it's a negotiation, is not in Manchester United's hands to say, let's do this straight away. Um, so it's all well and good Manchester United wanting to do that. I'm sure, they, I'm sure with any deal, they would want to get it done as soon as possible. But that is the power is in the hands of the talent and the talent who is in demand by uh, all manner of clubs across Europe. Now, what United could do is act very quickly on very, very high demands, but that would have such a big knock-on effect because, as Laurie says, with regards to the dynamic of a training of a, of a dressing room, you know, I think we've reported before, Bruno Fernandes is probably in line for a new contract um, during the next 12 months. Is he going to accept being on, I don't know, half of whatever they give Erling Haaland? Um, probably not, given what he's contributed to Manchester United. We still don't know what's going to happen to Paul Pogba. Um, it's not impossible he signs a new contract and his agent, I'm sure, will know exactly what uh, Erling Haaland <laughs> is <that> him? <laughs> So uh, that would be the same agent. So I think it's a really complicated one for United, but if they want to get it done quickly, it will be very expensive. It will be even more expensive, I would imagine. I think that's the point, though. If if they know what the you know the general financials will be, mm-hmm. you know, get out get out quickly is the is the alternative. So, which right. is obviously what they didn't do with Jaden Sancho. But I can understand that the right. pressures that they've got because if you've got a manager that says this is my guy, this is my number one target, Solskjaer has twice previously tried to get Manchester United to sign Erling Haaland once when he was Mulder manager. So, you know, it's 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 probably easy for me to say they should get out quickly. Uh, you know, for them, they're in the mix of it. They think this could be a player for the next, you know, decade. Do they really want to step away from it, you know, straight away? But I think that's the, that's the, the, the impetus, really. That's the, kind of what's being urged behind the scenes. If you can see this situation is going to develop into something that, that's similar to a, a Sancho saga, get out quickly. We look at Harry Kane. Again, that's a fraught situation but are there other strikers out there could you get Cavani could you could you retalk with Cavani and get him to sign again so what is the situation with Cavani is this being driven by him or are there doubts at the club about how fit he has been at times this season or because then there are reports of a clause in the contract that if United don't extend him they have to pay him some money anyhow. Uh, who who has the power in the Cavani situation? I would say it's uh, it's probably Cavani really because United will want to re-sign him, and um, I, I think Cavani is obviously weighing it up. You know, I think the, the fact of the, the FA ban it, it did affect him. You know, seriously in terms of this country feeling, um, you know, like he was portrayed in a certain way, and the fact that. You know, it's been locked down. He doesn't speak the language all that great. Does he want to go back to Boca Juniors? Or sorry, does he want to go back to South America um, and and be with Boca Juniors? He's got an offer on the table from them. So I think it's Cavani's decision to make, really. Does that have a direct impact on their search for a new striker? If Cavani stays, does that mean there's no alternative striker? And we do touch upon Kane in, in the column and, and we say that he's next on the list for Manchester United, but that's the easy part. The much harder part is for they or any other club getting him because Daniel Levy will almost certainly not even contemplate doing business with another English club at any price, potentially a foreign club if the price was right, but it's not going to be judging by the state of their finances and their priorities in the transfer market. So where do Manchester United look and does Cavani staying end that hunt? 
I would probably say that it would it, it helps the situation for United. It gives them a bit more leverage. If you've got Cavani in the building, a, a strike that they they can rely on, you know, for at least one more season, it it sort of lessens the need to get another centre forward in that position. And, and maybe you know we bring it back round to Jane Sancho, who we obviously mentioned in the column. Who, you know, there's still some um, communication I think there from from Jane Sancho to you know England teammates, you know, in a kind of light-hearted way about his his future. Clearly, United did a lot of work there uh, last summer with the wages and the agent fees so that wouldn't be an issue like it, it you know looks like it could be with Erling Haaland so I suppose that just opens up a door if you've got Cavani you know committed for another year it does perhaps just lessen the need to act immediately on the centre forward hunt it, clearly that's going to be a position that they do need to you know properly sort down at, at some stage but maybe there's other options you know there, there is admirers of Dominic Calvert-Lewin um, within the United squad and I wonder um, I know he didn't have a great game against Crystal Palace, um, missed a couple of chances, but I think he's shown this season that he can develop. Maybe is it a little bit too of an early stage right now to then go and be given that chance at Manchester United. But there are other options out there, I think. But uh, clearly Erling Haaland, as we say, is, is the number one. And I can't see Everton letting Calvert-Lewin go early. But Adam, it just seems a, an incredibly busy summer ahead for Manchester United. We've mentioned striker. We've mentioned the right side for the second year running. We know that they're focusing on recruiting at centre-half as well. If Pogba was to leave, and with only a year to go on his contract anyway, they need to keep an eye on the midfield. We know from January that they were considering a backup right-back. And there's even been plenty of talk about the goalkeeper situation as recently as the last couple of days again. So uh, busy times at Old Trafford. It is, but they're going into it, and they've not always been going into it this way, but they're going into it in a position of strength. They'll be in the Champions League, um, which helps them. It's a team they may be champions at this rate. They may be champions. Um, I, have, I have a weird feeling that City might lose their next game against Villa, which will mean that... In theory, we could go into the last five games um, with two teams five points um, separated at the top. But I think United are, are in this position of strength in that they are a developing, improving team. And that becomes a far more appealing option than being what a lot of the signings have been over the last seven years, which is, can you be the man to turn Manchester United around? And instead, it's, it's going to become, can you be the man that makes Manchester United from contenders into champions. And that's a far more positive environment, I think, to go into. And the United are going to have to decide a priority because they, they have, you know, if you can pick holes at right back, at centre back, central midfield, right wing and up front, if you're being ultra, ultra critical, but they're going to have to do that over the course of 18 months. Um, and I, you know, my instinct, and you know, Laurie watches them more closely than me, is you probably would prioritise a centre back first of all, um, and maybe a holding midfielder as well, because if you've got that base, you've, you've got quite a lot of talent up front still. I think Mason Greenwood, he's not had the best season, but I get the feeling next season he could be really special. Um, he's getting better and better. So I, I, my priority for Manchester United would be sort, you know, sort that foundation out and then you can trust all that attacking talent that you already have at the club at, probably to do sufficient damage. I think I agree with you, Adam, definitely, but in the, the way that United squad could uh, be enhanced in different areas. And I think the point here to make, you are saying you're being ultra critical. Well, certainly Solskjaer views it as United needs to be challenging for the title. And, and these are signs that need to be made to do that. So that's the ultimate ambition. So I think you're right in, in being ultra critical. Um, I kind of think that Victor Lindelof has actually shown himself to be pretty good in recent weeks, certainly at Spurs. I know he, he didn't look great, did he, for that, um, that opening Spurs goal, 
world. But I think in general, he's actually performed pretty well. Um, and he's got a really good understanding with Harry Maguire. I agree that perhaps could you have a defender that's more reliable as a, as a, as a backup or as an alternative? Eric Bailly shows glimpses of being that guy, but then it's a bit erratic in, in some of his play and also some of his availability, you know, injury-wise and obviously... Maguire's not missed a minute, yeah, has he? Right. I mean, he's, he's gonna get, he is going to get injured at some point over the next 18 months. So he's going to go into the Euros as well, play every minute there. I mean, I think that, you know, they've got by with two centre-backs basically for two yeah. seasons. Um, and they've been lucky, I think, in, in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I was, I was coming on to, the, the fact that actually the, the depth there behind, you know, Lindelof and Maguire isn't there really. I know Axel Twanzebe has played, uh, you know, really well this season at, at Paris Saint-Germain, but he's had a few issues and, and there obviously are, I suppose, slight concerns as to whether he's, he's in Manchester United quality for the long haul. Um, I'd like to see him given a few more chances, perhaps just to really test that. But my ultimate sort of, I would still come back to the point, I still think they need a proper centre-forward just because you can't rely on Edinson Cavani, you know, doing it for the long haul. And Anthony Marshall has shown himself to be better in different positions. We saw yesterday the transformative effect that a proper centre-forward yeah. can have on a team in those big games. We saw that with Cavani yesterday. It was the first time for a very long time when you watched United where you thought, wow, in a big game, look at that guy up front. Look at how he is carrying that team forward and really altering the course of the game. I've not, obviously not seen it enough from him, but it, it was a reminder of how important that position can be. When we talk about behind the scenes, Laurie, is this now being driven by John Murtagh and Darren Fletcher rather than Matt Judge? Well, I suppose Matt Judge would never drive things anyway. Previously, he's the you know the guy that kind of goes and negotiates and. I mean, you can have your own debates over whether that is a, a correct model and, wh- and whether he actually does drive it a little bit because he oh, sort of... Oh, I have, yeah, Laurie. I well, feel, <laughs> feel free to share, Mark. You are right to highlight that this, you know, the new structure, the, the John Murta, Darren Fletcher dynamic, which just from speaking to people already around it, is an awful lot going to change? Is, you know, is Minerola really going to go to John Murta and ask, you know, what Manchester United can do financial-wise for, for his client? No, he's going to go to either Ed Woodward or perhaps even ideally Joel Glazer direct you know I, I wouldn't put it past him to go that high I think John Murtagh is somebody that Ed Woodward trusts absolutely he's there in a position to field certain calls on certain issues you know perhaps at the lower end of the spectrum um, he's come from the academy where he's done you know deals with Hannibal Mesbury, Willie Camboala who was a young centre-back and other young players but I, I feel like in the senior end of things we still need to see if he's if he's going to you know get in the mix and, and, and do things of a kind of aggressive way that Manchester United feel like they need to be doing. And one final thing in all of this, and and someone, and this is not me being, I'm, not, you know, I, I genuinely think that they could do something here. Is where does Jesse Lingard affect their transfer policy this summer? Because if you think, and a lot of people do, that Mason Greenwood will eventually go down the middle, then Jesse Lingard's performances at West Ham could have an effect on what United's summer transfer policy will be. Yeah, it's a really live issue, that one. And depending on who you speak to, it sort of changes a little bit. My personal feeling is that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer would sell Jesse Lingard. He's gone to West Ham. He's had a really good time. Fantastic. I think everyone's 
uh, pleased at how well he's done, but he's actually got some value in the market now. I would I would argue that he's got more value certainly than when he went to West Ham. Albeit the counterpoint is that he's got one year left on his deal in the summer. So how much really, how much more really do you get from from that? Um, kind of performance that they're putting for West Ham. But I, I agree with you. I, I think that United, if they could sell him, you know, for 20, 25 million, that's kind of what industry, you know, people in the industry think that he could be worth. Um, then that gives you, as Manchester United, more currency in going out and, and putting, buying a marquee player that, that they obviously, you know, need a couple of positions in that regard. Um, Declan Rice was somebody that we mentioned in a piece with Roshane, my colleague who, who covers West Ham uh, last week, as somebody that Yancey United are looking at. And, and with talks over Jesse Lingard expected with West Ham in the summer, I'm sure Declan Rice will be brought up within that. Now, listen, I'm not saying that Jesse Lingard is any kind of make weight in that deal. He's his own player and he's got his own mind and he's attracting interest all of his own. So West Ham won't have it all their own way um, in a player of that quality. I think t- in terms of bringing it back to Manchester United, he's obviously got massive love for the club. Um, and I think that is a, a big factor that shouldn't be overlooked. I know it's probably easy to say, oh, you know, he's come through the academy, he's got his heart in the club. But I think he genuinely has great affection for the club and would ideally love to make it work at United. But I think that the way that he plays at West Ham, he's got that more freedom. He's got that guarantee of playing every game. He's got a license to try things. I don't think it'd be quite the same at Manchester United. And he, he has had chances. I mean, I suppose you can debate whether he's had them to the fullest extent, but I would say that he has played, you know, games for Manchester United under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Maybe this season it was a bit unfortunate that he missed out on so many squads. I think that that doesn't reflect great on Solskjaer. Perhaps there were moments where he could have been included, but I suppose he also had to weigh up trying to get Donny van der Beek into the squad and into the team when he was, you know, people were questioning where he was and he's, you know, the £40 million summer signing. So lots of different factors within it, but it's a really live issue. You're absolutely spot on. And we do encounter situations where it just doesn't work out, even at a huge club with a really good player who's come through the academy. Danny Welbeck moved away. I know a different example, but but with the same club. It was really interesting that when West Ham were negotiating with Manchester United to take Jesse Lingard on loan, and bearing in mind Lingard was offered to a lot of clubs who did not bite, there wasn't a huge market for him. West Ham tried to see if it was possible to insert an option to buy. And Manchester United said, no, I think they had a plan for the short term and also have him in their mind for the long term, even post-career. He's a Manchester United boy. I also think that he has too much love and respect for them to let his contract go down to free agency. And therefore, I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that he's sold this summer or signs a new contract and ends up being sold, purely down to the fact that I don't think he would want Manchester United to um, lose out on on anything for him. I think West Ham, is pretty obvious, would be in the driving seat, owing to what a good time he's had there. But the way he's playing, there is definitely going to be some rivalry for him that's only going to drive up the price. And in that sense, Manchester United may feel, as Laurie says, this is the peak moment from a business perspective. I think it's an amazing situation for United. And I, I the figure that keeps being quoted, 20, 25 million, I think it's low for, for what he's producing at the moment. I like, call it Sigurdsson syndrome because it's like one of those players who he's not worth £40 million to Manchester United. But in terms of what he could do in terms of a transformative effect for one of those clubs who's seventh, eighth or ninth, he might be worth 40 million to them. He could be worth 100 million to West Ham if they go from 
you know, seventh when he, what were they, seventh when he joined to Champions League football in terms of what he's bringing into the club. So I think, you know, I think United might have to, might be inclined to push for a higher figure, um, particularly if they can get a bit of an auction going, even, notwithstanding the, you know, only one year left on the deal. I think the impact that a player like that can have needs to be defined not only by his value to the, to the selling club, but also what he can bring to the buying club. And I think he's pretty, he's for anyone that's outside of that established top six, he is, he should be top of the list this summer for them. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's move on, Laurie, to uh, the piece you wrote on uh, Mourinho's reign uh, at Old Trafford, uh, which is an appropriate piece to discuss after uh, United's win at Tottenham. Um, I mean, so much of it does sound miserable, doesn't it? I think that's probably the main takeaway, yeah, that that actually it wasn't a happy situation and, you know, United won two trophies and, you know, fans, certain fans, the feedback has been, you know, you're overlooking the fact that he won, you know, the Europa League and Lily Cup with Manchester United and, you know, what's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer won? But it always felt that, and certainly from speaking to people that were there at the time, that it was an unhappy situation, that no one was really getting much joy from it. And when you reflect on how Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has kind of has worked at Manchester United, pleasure and enjoyment has been kind of key pillars. And I know they might sound romantic, misty-eyed concepts in football, but I do think there's a certain value in that. And and it okay, it timed quite nicely in the end with Manchester United staging a comeback win against Tottenham Hotspur. But you know the scenes at the end where you see Mourinho scowling and and, and Solskjaer smiling, it does kind of portray a, a picture. And you know there's obviously specific stuff that was going on that that, that Jose Mourinho had you know. Um, you know, probably valid grievances with. Um, but I think we're seeing some similar issues at Tottenham and that's why the piece felt relevant to me just because has Jose Mourinho changed? Does he need to change? What's what's the situation going to be with Tottenham and how much can you reflect on what happened at Manchester United as a as a prophecy for that? Well, I mean, it's interesting that, you, that there are similarities at Tottenham because one of his, and you put this in the piece and this was what I had heard as well at the time, one, one of his greatest frustrations at Old Trafford or at United rather was that the club, its infrastructure, its buildings hadn't moved with the times. And I, I, somebody once told me, you know, he walked into Old Trafford and he said, actually, they should put the O and the L and the D in much bigger letters than the uh, than the Trafford because... <laughs> I should have tapped it, you up it, for it, that it, info. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it is. But it is. It's a really... I mean, it is an old ground. I said before, it doesn't... Not that a screen is the be-all and end-all, but it ha- it doesn't feel like its facilities have updated with lots of other places. And he felt the same at Carrington, as, you, as you've written. That can't be the cause of any unhappiness at Tottenham because he's, wa- he's walked into the most modern ground in the world alongside one of the most modern training grounds. But not the most modern team. But then we're then we're always looking. Then there's there's always going to be something that's going to make him unhappy. That's the default setting with with Mourinho in that 
is it a winner's mentality to, to sort of complain and to say this needs to be better, this needs to be better, or can you have more diplomacy? Can you show a greater nuance in in those situations? And listen, you know, some players obviously need a bit of a rollicking every now and again. You know, some players won't learn by an arm around the shoulder, but I think the extent. And this is probably what the most pertinent stuff with the, the Tottenham element to it is that he's obviously, you know, the same methods are being employed there. You know, he's obviously calling out certain players publicly. He's obviously admonishing them privately. Um, you know, some players think uh, like that, think that's a good method, but a lot of them do not like it. And, you know, can that, that mode still exist in modern management? I, I don't know. We, obviously the results, you know, tell a certain story. And I think that was what I, I sort of took away from it, that at the end of it, there was, yeah, definite, um, sort of valid reasons for him being upset in certain moments, you know, transfer, you know, that, that summer of 2018, when you've got Fred coming in, you've got Diogo Dallow coming in and Lee Grant coming in. It's not the kind of way you want to respond to coming second to Manchester City and, and feeling like you need to bridge the gap. And so that is a you know, valid point. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is, is sort of contending with that, you know, dynamic as well. But to kind of then detonate it in such a public way as Jose Mourinho often, you know, did on, on a, a variety of things just means that, there's a, a weariness that eventually comes from that. And, you know, people feel like they can never do right. And and certainly, you know, you had that from the higher echelons. You know, you, you, you rightly mentioned that the training ground, I thought it was really interesting when I heard about Zlatan Ibrahimovic sharing those kind of concerns about the fact that it didn't feel like a super club that Manchester United should be. Some people at United will say, actually, we quite like the family feel, there's sort of rustiness to it. But I would argue that, you know, you really should be pushing the boundaries. And this goes back to the Glazers' ownership, particularly with Old Trafford and, and the, the renovation um, they will say that they have spent money on on the stadium uh, yeah, that's absolutely fine but equally it does feel does look tired you know you can understand Jose Mourinho's issues there but I think the, the general theme you know the feeling of it was that actually he just never he didn't feel like he was happy to be there and, and is that really going to ever you know bring success from a football point of view Adam you can't argue with his track record of trophies it's fair to point out that at United and Tottenham he hasn't got some of the players that he would have wanted to succeed further and there have been some issues around recruitment the Gareth Bale signing for example was clearly a Daniel Levy signing he may win a trophy in the League Cup final coming up against Manchester City but it does seem if you're looking at the reaction from United fans when he was there and Tottenham fans right now that the trophies, the success may not matter so much anymore. They just want him out, that everything he brings and stands for a large section of this fan base. Now, I'm not sure I was hearing these concerns when United won stuff under him and when Tottenham were top of the league. Oh, you were you were hearing them when you even when United won things, you were hearing them. Were Absolutely you? you were hearing them. Fine. So Adam, it does feel that the Mourinho trophy winning mystique has worn off because fans of his clubs just don't like his football, his demeanour, his character. Is is that fair or not? I actually don't agree with with, uh, with Chappers as much on the trip. I think, you know, the first season at United, I think the fans were pretty, you know, I'd say match-going fans were pretty loyal to him. For the first part, I thought, yeah, I thought he did all right. The first 18 months, I thought, you know, I think second season at Manchester United, first half of the season, they were really good. They won a lot of games 4-0 at the start of that season the football was all right it just got worse and worse and worse and it's, it is this thing of you know he calls it confrontational management he calls it a leadership method um, and there's probably been books that have been written about this form of management and it's very sort of 
you know, when you see any kind of successful environment from the late 90s, early 2000s, even if you, you know, go and watch an episode of Hell's Kitchen with Gordon <laughs> Ramsay, where we basically made, you know, society made this like an elite environment, just this guy going in and telling everyone their shit every day um, in a kitchen. And we thought, wow, what a, what a leader, what a manager. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, can, you can make the same comparison with, I don't know, uh, political spin doctors, someone like Alistair Campbell, how aggressive he could be and what a genius. Okay, fine. Uh, and I think, you know, Mourinho probably emerged as a, as a leader during that period. I'm not saying he went into Porto's dressing room and used the F word every day, but clearly it was an environment where success was highly demanding. You know, I think some of us guys would know that from, you know, what it could be like in newsrooms at, at times at, at different places in the, you know, during that period. So that's changed. And, you know, I think football and sport is probably the only environment now where you go in um, to a press, where you go have a press conference every day, every day, pretty much. And you're asked to judge publicly the performance of your employees. I mean, it's completely absurd. Like you imagine your boss just going out onto the TV every day being asked, did he try yesterday? Does he fancy it? You know, is he, is he, is he worth what he earns? So I think it's really hard um, for, for managers in terms of if you don't have that, you know, natural diplomacy to resist when you are asked probably 20 times a week, does your employee fancy going to work tomorrow? Um, so I, I do have some sympathy with Mourinho on that. But it's what I find odd, and I, I had a lot of conversations with people who were working at Chelsea, I think, the second time. And, you know, someone in the backroom staff there who said, oh, he just didn't really buy into one of the performance aspects, um, sports science aspects of the, of the job. And, and what that person said was just he didn't really fancy it because it hadn't brought him success before. And I wonder how much of what he does now is defined by the success he had at Porto or Chelsea first time around. This is what's worked for me. This is what's proven to work. Therefore, it will work again. Now, I'm not, that sort of portrays him as very old-fashioned in that sense. I don't think that's so irrational as a person. If you know something has brought you success, it can bring me success again. But it's clearly not working at Spurs. I mean, yesterday was ridiculous. As a, The second half performance, I thought, was as bad a performance I've seen from Spurs. The sports science thing, the science thing comes... By the way, you are right about newsrooms as well, Adam. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 when I first joined a newsroom in the late 90s, the people who'd been there quite a long time told a story about how one of the editors... This is a newsroom in central London on the first floor of a building. How one of the editors, in a fit of peak, had thrown a typewriter out of the window. Nobody in London, anyone? <laughs> no, well, exactly. I'm like, my God, on the first floor in central London, that's big, That's a big risk. Anyhow, one day, Adam, I'll explain to you what a typewriter is. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, the sports science thing, though, Laurie, that, that does come through a lot, and that's something else I had heard at his time at, at, at United, that a lot of the fitness experts and the sports science stuff, he'd actually kind of sidelined because that wasn't his thing. Yeah, it's a huge pillar of, of who Jose Mourinho is. And it goes back to um, his uh, methods, basically, tactical periodization, which I've done a few bits on before. I obviously didn't really know much about it prior to that, but it's, it's basically the idea that all training should be done with the ball because you're playing football with a ball 
Uh, John Terry spoke about this, I think, when he first came in at Chelsea and how revolutionary it was because, you know, why would you need to do gym work to, to strengthen your leg muscles if you, you know, if you just want to kick a football about and everything was was built with that in mind. And clearly there's there's a lot of um, advocates of that and, and it does make a lot of sense. But I think it came then at the detriment of sports scientists, even GPS, you know, Jose Mourinho is not somebody who buys into GPS tracking, you know, for, for seeing how far and how uh, the sort of speed to which players have run, you know, which seems a bit mad that you would just totally say, no, I don't need that. I mean, at least look at it and then go, okay, well, that's not going to inform you know, all my decisions, but at least it's something useful to know. He was very adamant that he didn't want the tail wagging the dog in a sense of a sports scientist telling him this player can't play because he's actually in the red zone for fitness. Um, and clearly, you know, we've seen that with injuries. He, he, he posted on Instagram, didn't he? Um, praise of Ben Davies who played with an injury at Aston Villa and then had to pull out of a Wales squad. And, and Jose Mourinho saw that as a, a fantastic thing because he put his body on the line. And, and there are elements to that with, with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for sure. You know, but I think that the fact that... Mourinho does push, you know, that kind of the, the scientific nature of it to the side. You know, United had a a room that was designed at Carrington specifically to just gauge in a kind of non-clinical way how players were feeling, do a few little tests before training, that kind of thing to kind of keep ticking over. And that developed into a, a bit of a, a database, I suppose, for, for understanding players' base levels for endurance and stamina and things like that. And that was changed into a massage room and the masseurs were empowered more. So, okay, we'll give you a nice rub, you know, to, to make you feel better and, and to get you out onto the pitch. Uh, and that then led to, you know, certain um, data files not being replenished and it took a bit of time for Solskjaer's reign for that to get going again. So I think that is a key pillar. And listen, you, you look at who his number two is at, at Tottenham, Jao Sacramento, um, wrote his thesis pretty much on tactical periodizations. He is very much of that ilk. What I did find was interesting was the, this idea that Rui Faria had actually, that was part of their sort of f- philosophical fallout, I suppose. Um, you know, obviously he left Manchester United and I think that was a big blow to lose him as a guy that was a kind of conduit between Jose's, you know, moods that he could have and, and the players and kind of being somebody that could maybe, you know, facilitate those relationships carrying on. Rui Faria was actually a, a really strong believer in tactical periodization, gym work, um, you know, didn't really want players doing much of it, that kind of stuff. Uh, and they, and Jose actually in his third season, I think was more open to GPS coming on board and, and, and that actually led to a bit of a split between him and Faria and, and, and that was sort of part of, of why he left. But clearly Jose's not gone too far from that because, you know, we're seeing it again at Spurs. I don't think he, he trusts much in that side of things. Um, and, and yeah, as you say, the match yesterday, Tottenham go ahead and then sit back and the energy exerted isn't quite the same level, the same kind of sprints that United are making and United instead are actually go on the front foot trying to make things happen. And that, I think, just goes to the heart of the different philosophies between Solskjaer and Mourinho um, at the clubs. This is a paid advertisement from Better Health Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. 
And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athletic football. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash athletic football with no spaces. Okay, let's uh, move it on then from uh, from talking Tottenham and Manchester United, and uh, it's time for on the plane, uh, our weekly feature with the illogical title, looking at how the England squad is shaping up ahead of Euro 2020. We're going to look at uh, the midfield area uh, on this week's uh, pod, which I think a lot of people, David, would say that Rice, Henderson, and Calvin Phillips would be nailed on here to to be in the squad, but two of those are carrying injuries at the moment. Yeah, and Henderson's. Seems to be pretty severe. They'll be desperate for him to be back in the mix because he's a guaranteed squad pick, of course. Um, People have started to question whether he's a guaranteed team pick given the rise of Declan Rice, who we're assured will be fit in time. I know he saw the kind of six-week time frame as being a little on the cautious side and was aiming to be back in four to five weeks max from this very small tear to the lateral collateral knee ligament in his right leg and we saw him bouncing around in the stands at West Ham uh, in, in their victory over the weekend let's hope that he's actually refreshed by this break and maybe even Henderson too I hadn't seen or studied closely Calvin Phillips as much over the last couple of years as I should have but I was so impressed with him against Manchester City and that suggests that they've got three really good options there that fitness permitting they won't need anymore but fitness permitting is kind of the key word isn't it Adam? Yeah it is I, I think Calvin Phillips is, is a really fascinating one because I think I was talking to someone at Leeds just just this weekend and I was saying to them you know when you talk about these Leeds players and if you were to put them on the market tomorrow someone like you know someone like Stuart Dallas who has been unbelievable for Leeds this season two goals against Manchester City this weekend but brilliant every week I was like what would Stuart Dallas be worth on the, if you were to sell him tomorrow? Because generally he's a player that sort of just bumbled around the championship for a few years. And now all of a sudden he's the best player in, in, Le- in Leeds' ninth place Premier League team. Is it a case of he's a great Bielsa player? And I mean this about Calvin Phillips as well. Or is he a great football player that could go into any team? And that by that I mean national team and have the same effect or is it this very specific role with very specific instructions and really the only way we find that out is by playing him at high levels in, in a tournament and you find out by experience with with that but the form he's shown for Leeds I think he's so influential he takes the ball he wins the ball um, he can you know he can score a goal um, really combative um, but I find it hard to overlook Henderson and Rice just because you know Henderson's won everything you could you could want to win. He's got the experience of tournaments. Um, I think for me, one of the things that, you know, the guys who cover Liverpool have said behind closed doors is his influence just on the pitch in terms of organising and leading is really significant. Um, so I think it's Henderson. If, they're, if, they're, if all three of them are fit, I think it's Henderson plus one. And that may be a different one each game because, you know, you've got a game every few days. It doesn't necessarily, you know, you don't have to pick the same team Every week, it's like when people say Mason Mount has to start every minute and every game. Well, we've got you know we've got you know several games. Let's see how it goes. Uh, but I do, my instinct would be Henderson plus one in that bit. If it is Henderson plus one for you, Adam, but you know Henderson Rice Phillips, 
is there a final place then that becomes in that sort of squad that comes will boil down to Bellingham against James Ward-Prowse? Yeah, unless he puts Eric Dyer in the squad, which means, you know, you've got cover at centre-back and central midfield. It's very hard to make an argument, I think, for Eric Dyer based on his club form, but based on, you know, I think we've spoken before in this segment about Southgate's nostalgia for, and trust in the, the, you know, the boys of 2018 in, in Russia and the experiences that they had together. So I think that puts Eric Dyer in a decent position. So maybe if you take Dyer, then you've got cover in that position. Ward Krause doesn't excite me that much as an England player. I think he's great for Southampton. I'd rather take Bellingham because I think that player is very unlikely to play anyway. You know, that is really, you're into extra time, you need some fresh legs um, or, you know, there's all of a sudden a massive injury crisis. I, I, I can't see that fourth midfielder actually getting that many minutes. So I quite like the idea of taking Bellingham. I know it worked really well for Theo Walker at the 2006 World Cup, but it was, um, it's that same sort of idea of let's go give him experience because we think he could be a big part of England for years to come. But Bellingham extraordinarily just seems like he could well be there on absolute merit and more than yeah. equipped to yeah. play if needed. I mean, he's playing in the Champions League quarterfinals for Dortmund. He's playing for them in the Bundesliga regularly. He's holding his own physically, technically, tactically. Yeah, there's still development to take place. But coming up, performing like he did at the Etihad Stadium last week was was a sign that he's perfectly ready for this level. James Ward-Prowse is a really interesting one because we I was speaking with some other colleagues when we were planning our Euros coverage and there seemed to be this sentiment that he's in based on the fact that he can be a killer from dead ball situations. And you shouldn't underestimate that. We saw it with Kieran Trippier at the 2018 World Cup and and that alone and, and his deadly accuracy could get him a place in the squad. Gareth Southgate knows him very well from the under-21s as well. I'm sort of in, in your camp there, Adam. Ordinarily, I, I don't think Ward-Prowse has done quite enough. He's also got a, I think it's a calf niggle that saw him pull out of, of the last match and for England um, and has been troubling him for a while. Um, but, I mean, I don't know what you think, Laurie, um, but for me, Bellingham is just, I don't know, he's, he's becoming an almost dead cert to go to the Euros. Yeah, I really like Bellingham and I, I like the, the interview that he gave after the Man City game as well. Obviously, he got the disallowed goal um, for some reason uh, and uh, but, but spoke with such maturity afterwards and I was left thinking, he, he's 17. You know, I'm trying to think what I was like when I was 17 and I certainly couldn't have had a camera shoved in my face, uh, you know, in a, a sort of a difficult moment and spoken with such assurity and, and, and kind that of just... Interview, that interview blew me away. I mean, yeah. we all raved about James Madison's post-match interview yeah. earlier in the season. He's quite a few years older than him. And not many people said anything about the Bellingham interview. I thought he was just cool. maturity way yeah. beyond his years, but so eloquent as well. Yeah, very eloquent. And, you know, Choppers, you can have a bit of cynicism here. Another signing that Manchester United missed out on to, to Borussia Dortmund. Uh, they, <laughs> yeah. they tried. They, they got they got Cantona, they got Fergie involved. Still wasn't enough. Um, so I think you'd probably have to say, you know, maybe fair enough uh, to Dortmund on that one. They offered him, you know, a greater guarantee and they could see the, the potential for development. And, you know, he's, he's obviously doing well for him. So I agree with you. I, I'm really excited by Bellingham. And I think, you know, even though he is uh, young, you know, you can see the the there for him the, the one thing I'd say on James Ward-Prowse and his free kick and, and corner kick ability obviously it's incredible you know it's, Manchester United know that from first-hand experience um, but would he actually even if he was on the pitch would he get a chance to take those free kicks you know if you've got Harry Kane you know if you've got you know Marcus Rashford or whoever else might be on the pitch is he really going to go actually guys I'll, I'll take this one 
Yeah, that is a that, yeah, that is a that is a fair point, actually. He gives Gareth Southgate, you know, he's an experienced pro. Um, he's been a leader at Southampton and and he, he would be a dependable squad player if if that's what you're looking for. Also, with Bellingham being 17, we, we should be cautious of that. And, you know, we're talking about him now, but not sort of putting any pressure on him at this stage of his career. He is so young and developing that, I mean... <laughs> it feels inevitable that he will go. But if he didn't go, for example, I don't want there to be some kind of national outcry when we're talking about a 17-year-old who's got a great future ahead of him. But it's almost like let him breathe a bit. David, I don't think there would be. And I, I think this is where he's been... I think this is, be, this is where he's been so clever. Well, he or his, his dad or his advisors have been so clever in taking him to Dortmund because I think a player like that becomes a real frenzy when there's a tribalism attached yeah. to him because of who he plays for. You know, so if it was Manchester United wonder kid left out, snubbed by Southgate, or Liverpool's wonderful right back left out by Southgate, it becomes a real frenzy and people are really angry. I don't think there's that base that's going to get angry about Bellingham. There'll be a bit of, oh, maybe we could have taken him. I get why we don't. I agree with you, though. I think not only on an experience level, but actually the more I think about it, on a quality level, um, he's, he's coming close to justifying his place. I think, I think with Ward Prowse as well, like with the set pieces, I mean, if Southgate's that bothered about set pieces, I mean, you've got a very good right back um, that he's not bothering to take <laughs> at the moment. So James Ward Prowse is, is a bit more than someone who can take a good free kick at a good corner. I mean, that's, that's doing him an injustice. He's a, he's, a player. Really. Yeah. he's a good player. I don't want to be mean well. to James Ward Prowse. <laughs> he seems lovely, um, but I, I think he's a good player. And that's and that's it. Look, Southgate has various uh, formations that are uh, available to him, obviously, and that he might well use or try. If he was to go three four three and it was two midfielders, who would those midfield two be? Finally, for you, Laurie. Oh, I was I was hoping you were going to give me a little bit more time to consider my thoughts. All right, on that you one. all right um, because you provide us such good material for the pod, David. <laughs> I would love, but I don't think it's going to happen. If I'm being realistic, to see a fit and inform Rice alongside Mount. I think that would make a really interesting dynamic, both defensively and offensively. However, we know that um, a fit Jordan Henderson is very difficult to ignore. And I'm not sure Gareth Southgate would use Rice and Henderson and Mount together in a two. It's just this halcyon vision of if England are really going to go for it, that would be a lovely platform, uh, in my opinion, because they can both do both parts of the role that are needed. And you, and you know they're friends as well. <laughs> Never heard of that. <laughs> uh, Laurie, do you need more time? I love the way Rice plays. I would, I would definitely pick him. Mount, yeah, I like that. Um, and and Henderson is Henderson. I'm allowed to ask: Is Henderson going to be fit? Is that a difficult dilemma at the at present moment? Because I think th- those are the three that you go for if, if they're all fit. He did ask for a two. Oh, sorry, yeah. is it two? Well, I did oh, ask for sorry. a two there. I mean, you could, a three's fine. A three's fine. I did um, say there were a okay. variety of formations open to. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to go absolutely rogue then and just change it totally and say Rice and Calvin Phillips um, just for a bit of dynamism in, in centre mid from from the Leeds the Leeds Bielsa boy Bielsa ball murder ball whatever you want to call it <laughs> Adam I, I can't even get my words out I would go Henderson well so I think Southgate will go Henderson and Rice and I think that's what I think that's what I would do as well actually 
Uh, right, then, uh, more on the plane on next week's pod and over on the Athletics YouTube channel. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, we'll be back here uh, next week. I'll be back on Thursday with the Business of Sport podcast as well. Thanks for listening. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, I'm Adam Hurry and Football Clichés is the podcast you never knew you needed. Every week, to quite unnecessary depth, we examine the words, the phrases, the accepted wisdom, the mannerisms, the habits, the gestures, the symbols, the sounds and the smells that everyone takes for granted in football, but which really are the glorious glue that holds it all together. For example, have you ever really listened to the Football League goals roundups? I mean, really listen to them? Because they all sound pretty much like this. Team X went into this game with just one win in their last 13. And when Team Y took the lead inside four minutes at Stadium Z, the home fans were probably starting to fear the worst. But Striker A had other ideas, and this game turned on its head in the space of five minutes midway through the second half. First, a smart finish from the edge of the box brought Team X level, and he repeated the trick on the hour mark to bring his tally for the season to 22. By now, Team X were in the mood, and although striker A squandered a gilt-edge chance to complete his hat-trick, on-loan Dutchman winger B made it three with a curling effort from long range. Team Y's misery was compounded in stoppage time when midfielder C's late challenge on fullback D saw them reduced to ten men. An afternoon to forget for manager E's men then, but Team X will hope they have finally turned a corner under caretaker boss manager F. Listen to Football Clichés wherever you get your podcasts and also ad-free when you subscribe to The Athletic. The Athletic.